And now, broadcasting live on Star Worldwide Networks, it's time for Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery with Dr. William Nelson. If you suffer from addiction to opiate pain relievers, heroin, alcohol, or other substances, we're here to give you hope and help you overcome your addiction. Now, here's your host, Dr. Nelson. Good morning. On uh, January 19th, we um, had a podcast with uh, uh, today's guest, and um, mostly we covered the signs of uh, that parents should look for if they're um, concerned about their, their adolescent uh, or their child in regard to adolescent substance abuse. And we, we talked about the signs that you might look for. We talked about the parent-child interaction. We talked about all sorts of stuff. But uh, because there were so many things to talk about, we didn't get into the nitty-gritty of what actually is the best approach once the problem has been identified and the parent is made aware of the situation and where are we going to go and how are we going to get treatment? Because um, I I suggest if you uh, are new to this podcast and you're looking for a best way to deal with your child substance abuse disorder is first go back and listen to the podcast on January 19th called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Substance Abuse, which also happens to be the title of Richard Capriola's book. Um, he and I got a, I just re-listened to it and I, I got uh, more key distinctions listening to it um, after the fact and we had the conversation, but listening to it on the way into the podcast, I, I really feel it was a really great conversation and but I got to the end, and we kind of ran out of time, which often occurs. And so what we wanted to do today is uh, reintroduce uh, Richard Caprioli and uh, Capriola and um, have him uh, give his opinion about what to do once we've identified this, where to go, how to, how to choose a treatment program, and then how to monitor it and how to get the best results for your addicted child. Um, a uh, brief bio on Richard. Richard Capriola has been a licensed addiction mental health counselor for over two decades. He has been licensed in Illinois and Texas, recently retired from the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, where he was addiction counselor for 11 years, treating both adults and adolescents diagnosed with substance use disorder. He's also, the, as I mentioned, the author of The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse, where there is also a parent workbook to help the parent process their feelings and their challenges in in their process of what needs to occur and to help them along the way. So with that, um, Richard, welcome back. Well, thank you, Dr. Nelson. It's a pleasure to, uh, to be back with you uh, today and to follow up on our previous discussion on adolescent substance abuse. Which I thought, which I hope was very helpful to people who listened. Uh, we covered a lot of basic information that uh, is also included in my uh, in my book, The Addicted Child. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time to uh, pick up on that conversation and continue our discussion. Yeah, um, I it was really great. I've kind of listened to it again, and I I definitely got more information this time than I did during the discussion because I was probably focusing on what I was going to ask you next. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I, I appreciate all of your information and um, and look forward to hearing more about uh, this r- incredible challenge. Um, you know, I should stop and 
you know, reintroduce anybody that's new to the program. My name is, by the way, Dr. William Nelson. I'm an addiction counselor, and um, you're ris- listening to Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery. So in case you got on the podcast without knowing that, that'd probably be important to know. So, uh, Richard, let's pick it up where we left off. I think I was looking through some of the questions that you had suggested that I could ask, and um, one of the things that I don't know if we really did uh, cover in that first episode is, uh, is there anything parents can especially do in an early age to foster an environment to lessen the likelihood that their child will use substances? Yes, I think there is, uh, and, I, and I think one of the most important uh, things that parents can do is to develop uh, what I refer to as good listening skills. And that, that's something we can all uh, work on as adults and, and as parents. Uh, but it is so important to develop uh, these, these listening skills. And by that, Dr. Nelson, I mean, we're pretty good at listening to people's words when they talk to us so that when we're talking to our children or we're talking to other adults, we're pretty good at listening to their words that they're saying, but sometimes we're not so good at listening to the feelings that are underneath those words. And that's a skill that all of us and every parent can work on and can practice. Uh, and I have some examples in the, in the parent workbook, but basically what it comes down to is learning and practicing the skill of focusing on our child's feelings so that when they're talking to us, we're hearing not just their words, but their feelings. And as we practice that and we become more skilled at it, I think that's probably one of the foundations that parents can set to help steer their child away from the vulnerability of being captured by uh, alcohol or drugs. If they're facing a problem, if they're going through a crisis, if they're experiencing peer pressure or any type of bullying, they're more likely to respond to you if they feel that you're listening to their feelings, that you understand what they're feeling, than if you just listen to their words and react only to the words. So my advice to parents, practice those listening skills, learn the skill of of, of listening to your child's feelings as well as their words. Yeah, very, very good point. You know, it's kind of, um, you know, this is probably not politically correct, but uh, who cares? Because um, I'm not politically correct necessarily. But uh, it seems to be more of a female trait that females will listen to the feelings and they elicit the feelings because they have the ability to feel their feelings. And uh, in my uh, upbringing, my dad, he, we talked about the weather, we talked about golf, we talked about, you know, sports, but I don't know if on, you know, a couple of times in my entire life that we actually talked about my feelings or his feelings. And the one in particular I remember is when my mother had uh, colon cancer and he and I spent an hour drive on the way to the hospital after her surgery. And that was probably one of the few times that we even talked about feelings or I even knew that he had feelings. So, uh, uh, those men out there or, uh, you know, maybe take some lessons and, and maybe at first listen to your your better half or your female partner, or your spouse, your wife, and listen to how they elicit and can and em- empathize with your child instead of, um, we talked about it on the original podcast, and men go into a fix-it mode. It's like, all right, you know, our, our kid's addicted and, you know, they got caught with drugs or they got kicked out of school or... Man, we we found needles in their in their closet, 
hidden behind a book. And uh, so the, the man or the father is going to go right in. Let's fix it. So get him into treatment. You know, do this, do this. And want to fix it rather than understanding the reasons behind or the emotions that are driving the behavior. So very, very good advice for both parents. But uh, chances are the women are probably better at it, even though there are going to be people out there say, that's sexist, Dr. Nelson. Well, if it's an observation that's accurate, you know, so be it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think your observation is right on point. I think I think uh, men are more prone prone to a quick let's let's get at the problem, let's fix it. This is the issue. We need to we need to deal with it right away. Uh, whereas women, uh, you know, for various reasons, might uh, might more likely take an approach of okay, well, let's let's find out what's really going on here. And it is so important that when you're in the middle of a crisis and you and you've discovered that your child is using a substance, it is it is so important that you slow down, you take the time to talk to the child, you listen to the feelings, not just the words. Uh, because if you react too quickly, you may run the risk of missing something very important. And, and what that is that you may be missing is that underlying reason as to why your child might be using a substance. If you focus just on the substance use itself, you may very well be missing an underlying psychological reason why your child is using a substance. Right, and maybe uh, maybe underlying uh, uh, social anxiety that's you know, separate and distinct from normal adolescent uh, individuation, or a depression, or you know maybe some other uh, comorbidity or co uh, uh, dual diagnosis. Is that is that fair to say? That's absolutely correct. Uh, the large majority of teenagers that I worked with did have an underlying issue, uh, whether it was anxiety or depression, or maybe it was accompanying uh, disorder such as an eating disorder or self-injury. So many times, not all the time, but many times uh, when you do a comprehensive assessment, you may undercover a psychological issue that lies at the foundation uh, to, to the child using a substance. Yeah, and uh, I think that's super important because we kind of we kind of miss the boat if we go, as you mentioned, right into treating the substance use disorder, because that may only be a symptom of what be may be causing it. And uh, oftentimes, a child may be using that substance, alcohol, drug, or what have you, as a self treatment or self medicating rather than you know, talking about it because there may be some level of embarrassment, there may be some judgment. And I, I think we touched on this last time is uh, kids don't want to necessarily be judged by their parents. They they want to, usually the kids are trying to please the parents or trying to make sure that their parents uh, hold them in high regard. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of the interaction between parent and child uh, is is. If it's too harsh or too judgmental, then the child oftentimes won't even want to bring out some of these uh, sensitive issues because of the fear of being judged or critiqued. That's absolutely right. And when we ask uh, adolescents, what is it that, uh, that keeps you from uh, talking to your parents about things that are troubling you? You know, the answer that comes back is the fear of being judged. They don't want to be judged by anybody, but particularly they don't want to be judged by their parents. Yeah. Well, I, I can only look back at my uh, my childhood, my adolescence. I wasn't 
I didn't really experiment a lot with drugs or alcohol until I was a little bit later, you know, compared to all my friends and about my classmates. But when I did, I got into some big trouble and it was super embarrassing. And, you know, because I, I didn't want my parents to think that I was into that. And so it was really difficult to, uh, and I wouldn't, I don't think I would ever uh, approach them and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about going out and drinking uh, Friday. What do you think? Good idea? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that I had that type of relationship with my parents. And uh, yeah, right. and I know with my kids, I kind of, I try to do it a little differently. I, I said, you know, hey, you know, I know that there's a lot of things out there uh, including sex and including drugs or alcohol. And just so you know, you know, I don't expect that you're not going to experience that. And you know, I'm going to not put the clamps on you. So, you know, I'm going to forbid you from ever doing that. It's kind of, that's part of a child's growth process and learning how to be a responsible adult is they, you give them guidance and hopefully they make good decisions, but allow them to make those decisions. But, uh, at the same time, almost like telling them these are the sorts of things you might experience, and if so, you know, be aware that it can be create a huge problem. And it's I think it may be a different approach because we oftentimes try to feel well if I keep them, you know, lock under key and and you know restrict access to all that and don't let them go out and don't let them I don't like those friends because they seem like they may be the type that would introduce drugs or alcohol into their uh, environment. I don't think that's necessarily a good approach, but it for those parents that try to minimize the anxiety of of the adolescent experience, they, the parent is going to be anxious because of what if it doesn't work? What if I kind of tell them and, and tell them that I know that you're probably going to experiment, and then they go out and get addicted? So it's it's kind of a challenging approach. I don't. What do you think in regard to that? Well, I think uh, I think being too restrictive uh, probably is not an approach that's going to work out very well for either the child or the parent. Um, you know, the, all children, uh, all adolescents are vulnerable to being caught up on drugs. Uh, there is no perfect environment. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your income is. It doesn't matter what church you go to, and it doesn't matter what school you go to. All children are subject to becoming vulnerable and at risk of exposure to drugs because these drugs are readily available to kids. When we ask them, how easy, how easy, is, easy is it for you to get a hold of a drug like marijuana or alcohol, they tell us it's very easy. It's not yeah. a problem. They, they can find it. So um, there are protective environments, but there's no child that's completely protected from exposure to alcohol and drugs, and parents need to be aware of that. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, if anything, find find some other activity that, that can occupy their mind and they get excited about. So I've had friends that, you know, their children are into horses or they're into sports or they're into music or or other things. And hopefully the those activities aren't going to encourage the drug or alcohol use. But if they get really excited about something, they're less apt to to if they, even if they do experiment, if they have something really excited about, then that's something to lose. Like, oh, if I become I think, if I become really you know messed up on alcohol or drugs, I'm not going to be able to play sports as well, or I'm not going to be able to be in the theater. I'm not going to be able to you know do those other things that are so important to me. So find a way that something else will be more important. I think that's a good advice. I think what what you want to what you want to avoid is boredom. 
yeah. the child becoming bored and, and not having activity, not having friends. So the more you can encourage and support your child to get involved in activities, something that they feel passionate about, yeah. something they're really interested in, I think that'll go a long way towards setting up a boundary that will protect your child. Yeah, and almost like it's almost like rather than the parent figuring out what activity the child should be in because it's something they're interested in, is be open-minded and whatever. If they show an interest in anything, encourage it. Go, oh, that sounds great. What do you? Let's let's see if we can, you know, get you more involved. Let's you know and encourage them to do it because some parents are like, well, I liked you know for me, me in particular, I like golf and I liked uh, um, rock climbing, and so I had two uh, two children and I wanted to I wanted to do that because I wanted to do it with them and they had zero interest in it and <laughs> so I found like well. I guess they're not going to be interested in that. So then when they did find things they were interested, then I just supported them in that and, and yeah. went to their performance or did whatever it is that they uh, chose to pursue. You know, yeah, I think, as, I think as a parent, what you try to do is expose your child to different activities and then see which ones they really pick up on and they're interested in. You might try something like rock climbing and, and you find out the kid's not interested in it. You find something like baseball or some other sport, and all of a sudden it kicks in, and you can notice right away that they're really passionate about it and they're interested in it. So in many cases, it's it's just trying different activities with your child to see which ones they pick up on and which ones they don't. Yeah. All right. So, Richard, when we spoke last, you said you said something really important, and that is to look for signs, warning signs that may indicate that your child may be either experimenting with uh, substances or are developing a substance use disorder. And maybe just briefly, if you can highlight that, uh, those key issues, and then take it from there. And then what do you do if if they do, if you're uh, finding out that they do have a problem? Where where do you go? How do you choose a good uh, mode of action or a, or a treatment? Well, I think that uh, in regard to warning signs, um, in my book, The Addicted Child, I have uh, warning signs listed for things like alcohol and marijuana. There are warning signs for a child that's developing an eating disorder or who are self-injuring. So those warning signs are are set out in the book. But as we discussed uh, in our previous uh, session together, What I recommend parents do as a general rule is pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone, so pay attention to those changes. Don't assume that any changes you see are just normal adolescent acting out. They may very well be, but the more of these changes that you see and the longer the duration of the changes, I think that's a that's a signal that you need to be concerned that there might be something going on underneath the surface. And some examples that I would give is a a child who uh, his his grades are beginning to decline. Uh, A child who um, used to enjoy participating in sports no longer wants to participate in sports. A child who um, who used to be very open and outgoing now becomes very secretive and very quiet. A child who used to introduce you to their friends, you knew who their friends were, uh, now becomes very secretive of their friends. So these kinds of changes that you see in your child, you need to pick up on and you need to observe them. And you need to observe them in terms of how long are these changes going on. You know, if they last a day or two or three, it's probably not a big indicator. 
But if they go on day after day, week after week, and the more of these changes you see, so when you start to see one or two and then it becomes three, then I think those are signals that there might be something going on underneath the surface that you need to pay attention to. And, and, and I would recommend the first thing to do is have a discussion with your child uh, to see if they'll open up and talk about these and, and approach it from, <clears throat> from a standpoint of curiosity. In other words, I'm seeing these changes. I'm concerned. Can you help me understand why I'm seeing these changes? And then regardless of how that discussion goes, I think the next step is to get some professional assessments done so that you can get the diagnoses that you need and a treatment plan to move forward. In other words, so that you get a complete picture of what's going on and an action plan on what to do next. So if you were to uh, pursue that model, how would, what would be the best or uh, the best recommendation about how to get that assessment? Because um, I, I would imagine that a lot of kids are like, come, they're like, oh, my God, you know, and roll their eyes, shrug their shoulders, look away, and do this big adolescent size, like, you're so overreacting, Dad. Um, what, what, uh, what is the best way to do that in a way that, um, you know, where, where, what resources, where would you find that uh, comprehensive assessment? Well, I think you can begin by, um, you know, talking to your, uh, your, your family physician. Oftentimes they have uh, resources and referrals that they can uh, recommend to you. You can also talk to your school counselor. They also may have uh, recommendations and referrals that, that, that can be uh, offered to you. You can contact your local mental health uh, association. Uh, they can also provide uh, recommendations and referrals to you. You'll want a referral to uh, obtain an addictions assessment from a licensed addictions counselor like myself. You'll want to get a psychological or a neuropsychological assessment that will help you see if there's an underlying emotional issue that your child may be uh, facing. And you'll want a complete physical exam to make sure that there's nothing physically that might be contributing to what you're seeing. So there's a number of these uh, assessments that need to be done so that you get a complete picture of your child and if there is a problem that's diagnosed, um, then you can go about getting a treatment plan put together and know what the next step should be. Yeah, that's, that's really good. You know, uh, from my experience, um, I think that most primary care family physicians are ill-equipped to, to, you know, personally assess uh, the addiction. And I think some of them don't really have the wherewithal or even the awareness to even ask or inquire about addiction and uh, substance use for adolescents during uh, a standard examination or if they come in for a cold or flu. So I think that's changing a bit um, where, where now that they're, they're more apt to ask just even a quick screening of, uh, of that sort of thing. Well, I, I, I think your observation is, is correct, uh, you know, and it's unfortunate because there are some rapid screens that involve asking like four or five questions that a physician could, uh, could ask an adolescent at a, at a physical exam. Uh, they're not going to be in-depth, but they're going to give you enough information so that a physician would know whether or not to recommend to the family that there be a more in-depth assessment. 
and I and I think that 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 needs to be improved. I think family physicians need to, you know, to to learn what those assessments are, what those rapid assessments are, and they need to incorporate it within the physical exam process that they give adolescents because it may be the first step at uncovering an issue. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that I I think is a challenge too is uh, oftentimes these the underlying cause, so to speak, may be something that is either embarrassing or maybe traumatic. And, you know, what I'm referring to is maybe maybe there's a bullying that's occurred and maybe this kid's awkward or, you know, being bullied at school or made fun of or social ridicule. And then they want to they they turn more uh, internal and become more reclusive and uh, kind of withdrawn. Um, and that could be either in person or on on the social media. The other would be any sort of traumatic event, say even some sort of a sexual abuse or physical abuse, in, maybe from a relative or babysitter or who knows what. And then also with uh, often with uh, young women is they may have been subject to a rape, a date rape or something mm-hmm. like that, which I know occurs. How do you, I've, I've asked, you know, in the course of my work, uh, working with people with addiction, I'll ask them that question point blank, and rarely, if ever, does anybody say, oh, yeah, well, this happened, and, you know, this is what, what my initial things that uh, made me uh, kind of head towards drug use or alcohol use because I, wa- I just didn't know how to handle my feelings in regard to this you know, abusive situation. They're they're reticent to share that with someone that they don't know well. And also they're reticent to share it with their parents. So what can a parent do um, to, in a situation where they may be suspicious that something like this has happened because their behavior changes, and yet the, the child won't freely admit that? Is that something that you um, can give advice to? Well, I think I think that happens uh, for the reasons that that you just explained, and the the examples that you gave are, are excellent examples of situations uh, that unfortunately many children go through. They they experience a trauma, they experience uh, some type of of abuse, or, or maybe it's bullying at school, and 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 they tend to keep that within themselves. And when it becomes so overwhelming that they seek relief if they have an opportunity to find that relief in a substance, they're more likely to turn to it. Um, and, and these are issues that, 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 that are so uh, traumatic to the child uh, that, that they're not easily discussed. Uh, they're not easily discussed with parents and, and oftentimes they're not easily discussed with a therapist. Uh, but I think that the best advice that I have is if you see these signs, regardless of what they are, um, you need to act on those signs and, and, and have that child professionally assessed. Um, and, and that assessment may not bring out this issue immediately. It may take some time, but, but, a, but a therapist is probably going to pick up on the, on the idea that there's something going on, that there is something underneath the surface. They may not know what it is right away, but with continued work and continued uh, observation, they're going to uncover it at some point. Um, you know, a lot of therapy is, 
is basically developing a trusting relationship between the child and the therapist. And as that as that trust factor builds, then more and more issues sort of bubble to the surface. So um, you may not have all the answers immediately, but if you continue to work at it and you and you get the proper assessments and the proper care, those issues eventually are going to come to the surface. Yeah. Well, as I often do, I can share personal insight from my experience as a parent. And uh, one of my kids uh, was struggling and uh, found a counselor and confided in a counselor and then shared, uh, did explain some things that had occurred. And then um, I think they even mentioned that they had uh, suicidal thoughts and weren't going to commit suicide, but had thought about it. And then there also was some aspects of abuse from someone who was, you know, at temporarily in their life and, uh, and then some substance abuse or substance experimentation that may or may not have turned into abuse. And the therapist, um, due to their requirements, made uh, my ex-wife and I aware of this, and my child was so incensed and felt violated and looked looked up the laws online and said they broke the confidentiality agreement and they were so frustrated and upset that it put back, I think it forestalled their eventual treatment um, because they had such a rude awakening and were so incensed that their um, confidentiality had been violated and they they refused to see any more therapist after that and and afterwards were very clear about you know not including that sensitive information because then when we had uh, talked about it and asked about it they said oh that was just something i said and it wasn't true and so it's you know it's it sounds it sounds so you know, I, I don't even know how to how to describe the the sense of the frustration where this this need and desire to be accepted and um, looking for parent approval, I think, is the reason why they were in denial of the of the truth. And yet, when they shared that, it it, it was very very difficult to circumnavigate, and probably. It wasn't, wasn't until four years or more later where those issues came up again, and now the child was ready to admit and allowing a me as a father and my ex as her mother to inside about what truly happened, and then we could get treatment. So I, I don't know how to how to get around that because we thought we weren't we weren't judgmental. I I wasn't. My wife and I, ex-wife and I, had a conversation, and and my wife was one of the. Well, we got to shut things down. We got to restrict her access to things. We'll we'll ground her. We'll put her in all these restrictive uh, in, environment. And I'm like, that's not at all what you want to do. You want to, you know, make sure they're not in harm's way, but allow them the the latitude as long as they're not, you know, doing something that's going to cause harm. So I know I've rambled on about it, but it was because it was my, for my own personal, you know, experience. What would you say that we could have done differently 
uh, when, when that first occurred, where this, uh, a therapist reported to us, says, you know, I want you to know that this was told to me and this is what was addressed. And then, what, and then, then when we, they, that information was told to us by the therapist in the presence of our child, the child was so mad and incensed and kind of just withdrew from everything. Yeah, and I think that's a real tough issue to deal with, um, you know, and, and the child is feeling as if the confidence that was shared was 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 violated. And, and not only was it violated, but it was told to the parents, which is uh, probably even even more upsetting to the child that the parents learned something that the child really did not want them to know about from a from another source mm -hmm. and and i think that um you know there is no right or wrong approach here but but um i i think looking in hindsight probably um one of the things to do was to acknowledge the child's anger to sort of appreciate the fact that the, that the child felt violated, uh, that their confidentiality uh, was was in the child's uh, viewpoint uh, compromised, and just to reflect that you know I understand how you're feeling and and I might feel the same way if I was in your situation, and see if you could move that child away from the anger uh, to to maybe okay now now it's out there let's see if we can talk about it in a way that 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 will be you know compassionate and understanding but i think the first thing that to do is to acknowledge the validity of the child's anger and then to see in time if if the child can move away from that anger and now that the issue is out there maybe uh maybe the child uh, in time will be open to to talking to the parents about it a little more yeah that I, I, it, it was kind of a blur, and I don't really remember um, exactly how it was dealt with. But I, as we were discussing earlier, and your point is so well taken, and you were consistent with your advice, and that is to deal with their emotion. And I think, yeah. I think we probably dealt more with the practicality <clears throat> of what occurred and the fact they, they were using substances instead of really just focusing on the anger and the emotion involved and then this sense of feeling violated and and certainly probably felt judged by her parents which i i didn't and i don't think my ex did judge them but um in and kind of in retrospect i'm thinking that that was probably what occurred is that we focused more on like well this is the problem let's fix the problem instead of saying well let's really validate their feelings and and have compassion and caring with non-judgment as to what their experience was and to and to get an understanding about that first and foremost before we jumped into the the crisis or the treatment mode yeah i, I agree and i and i think that you know it's it's you know, we can talk about these different strategies, but in the moment, it's very difficult because as parents, we get wrapped up in the emotion, we get wrapped up into, you know, the fix it mode, and we get wrapped up in into our own feelings and emotions too. Um, so, so this is not easy to do. But, but, but as I said at the very beginning, it's a skill that every pa parent can learn, and that is to focus 
not so much on on the words, but focus on the feelings and try to get in tune with the child's feelings and emotions and respond to those as opposed to the actual event itself. Yeah. And I and kind of uh, thinking out loud and in kind of a, a moment of self-disclosure is that I was experiencing some incredibly intense feelings. So I was I was so overwhelmed with my own feelings that I wasn't in a mature and adult place where I could be there for my child to express their feelings. And so because <laughs> I was, you know, afraid, I was worried. And then when later on, when I learned more of the details four years later about the abuse issues that occurred, I blew my top. We were in a family counseling center at, a, at an inpatient facility, and I blew my top when I learned of the, the abuse of the child. And, and my kid said, Dad, that's why I didn't want to tell you before, because I, didn't, I was afraid of what you might do. And I'm not a violent person. I'm not a, I you know, can't remember the last time I was in a fight. Probably I was in 10 years old. But I literally want to physically harm the person when I heard what happened. And yeah. had they been in the room, I, I'm sure I would have beat the shit out of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a reaction that just about any parent would yeah. have when they learn that their child has been physically or sexually or even verbally abused. We want to protect our children. Yeah. And we find when we find out that they have been abused, you know, we want to strike out. We yeah. want to strike out. First of all, we want to protect them. And then we want to go after who's ever committed the abuse. Yeah. I think those are all normal reactions that parents have. Yeah. And then, and then I was, I was going to press charges. <laughs> I was going to do all this stuff. And, and my kid said, no, I don't want to have to deal with that again. It's over. I'm, I'm processing all of that, and I don't want to have to revisit it. And it was really hard for me to say, okay, well, I'm going to honor your position and your feelings because I, I wanted to do, you know. And so that, you know, that's a, in and of itself is a really, you know, it's a probably on a case-by-case -case basis. But, you know, you, you know, the good news is now that child is, is so much better adjusted um, but to me, it's it's taken years for them to work through the, all the challenges and the feelings and all of the anger, resentment, and the feeling of guilt and all of the complicated issues that occur. And to me, it stole a good portion of their adolescent life where they were they were dealing with things that a child shouldn't have to deal with. You know, and, yeah. and so when we say, "Well, it's not fair," well. You know whether it's fair or not; it's the reality. And so, to um, but it's challenges that people should, young people shouldn't have to deal with because it's hard enough to be an adolescent. It's hard enough to be a teenager to go through all that and then to have those issues. It is it, it just just being a teenager is is especially in this environment and and in light of everything that's been going on with the pandemic, it's very difficult for for these kids to. Mm -hmm. To, to, to get through this this entire issue and then when you add the underlying issues of of uh, <clears throat> any type of psychological things that might be going on that just compounds the difficulty yeah so um so richard i i have a, a question that um it, it's it's something that you may really have a good 
feeling for and may not. But in the, t- in the course of the time that I've worked with people that are, have children uh, that are suffering from addiction, I, 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 can't, I can't seem to put my finger on it, but there's something, a very nuanced aspect to effective treatment that I still can't quite figure out. And what I mean by that is someone where a problem's identified, they receive some of the medical-assisted treatment that I do. For those of you who aren't listen, or new listeners, I use oftentimes new, use naltrexone um, for opioid and uh, fentanyl addiction where we place a pellet under the skin. It lasts for four to six months, prevents them from using, and takes away cravings. So it takes care of the biological aspect of the physical addiction and prevents relapse for that period of time. And then we also use um, naltrexone and orally for um, people with alcohol use disorder where they take a pill, wait an hour, and drink. And that's usually not for uh, younger people. That's usually for uh, people that are older. But uh, the point being, and the question is, you know, that's only a, a, a portion of what needs to occur in the recovery program. Then the other part, the, to me, it's where the rubber meets the road. It's, it's understanding the underlying cause. It's counseling. It's a, whether it be meetings. It's addiction coach. It's parent, changing in parenting style. It's helping that child work through their uh, adolescent and in their growth and development emotionally and uh, mentally. What are the what are the key elements that you see or you have seen um, with your work in Menninger and in your private practice? What are the things that are essential, or, or that either the things that are essential that occur, or things that don't occur when when there isn't a successful outcome, meaning they relapse and recurring relapse, recurring relapse? Well, I think I think there's a number of issues um, depending on the severity of the disorder. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the treatment cycle is too short, and by that I mean that we will we will take somebody who has a severe addiction, a substance use disorder that is in the severe category, uh, as opposed to either mild or moderate, and we will send them into a treatment program that might last a few weeks, and unfortunately, uh, that's probably not. Uh, going to be very successful for for a lot of people. You know, the research would indicate that the best outcome treatments uh, are are for people who stay in treatment for 90 days or more. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, many people can't afford to to be in treatment for for. Uh, uh, for three months, many insurance programs limit the duration to maybe a month. But the best outcomes for a severe addiction is treatment that lasts at least three months. And and when you add in the underlying psychological issues, treatment may need to last much longer than that. So uh, many of the uh, adolescents that I worked with at Menninger uh, most of them had a severe underlying psychological issue. It might have been uh, uh, anxiety, it might have been depression, it might have been suicidal thinking, it might have been self-harming themselves or an eating disorder. 
or it might have been an emerging personality disorder that was that was uh, that we uncovered. Uh, it could have been um, uh, something so severe that what we ended up doing was recommending a longer term program that would last six to twelve months or even longer. But it was a program that um, that focused on the underlying mental health issue. They didn't ignore the addiction. They included it within the treatment. But the primary emphasis of the treatment was on the underlying psychological issue. And um, and and in many times, because the the the, the underlying issue was so severe, uh, we were looking at placing children, uh, young adults into treatment that would last six to 12 months or even longer. And unfortunately, we see higher relapse rates when the treatment is not targeted specifically to the underlying issues that the person is confronting. Uh, but um, you know, every case is different, every individual is different. That's why it's so important to get a comprehensive assessment and a treatment plan put together. So as a parent, you know what the best options are. Yeah, I think that point is so well taken because so many times um, my interaction and most of the people that I'm interacting with were it's a we I guess you would consider it to be a uh, a severe substance use disorders with uh, the prevalence of opioids and now fentanyl and where these people are taking you know fifty pills seventy pills a day. And, yeah. you know, sometimes I'm just like, how in the world could anybody possibly do that? And the the fact that they're still walking around and alive is just mind-boggling. But when someone is using that much, and to get them to go from that to being sober is, is a huge monumental challenge. And, you know, once they produce clean urine and have the opioid or the fentanyl out of their system, and we can place a a naltrexone pellet to prevent them from using, you know, I, I do my best to say, you know, this is not a cure. This is not what's going to keep you from using. This is a tool that allows you the opportunity to pursue all that needs to take place in order for you to recreate a sober life. And, and it's kind of like those words just go out into the ether and they're not, they're rarely embraced and rarely as the person the young person kind of take it to heart i think a lot of times they have this self you know deception that oh you know i got this i you know i can i can deal with this and they kind of minimize the challenge it's going to take in order to do all the things necessary to maintain sobriety and it's almost like the naltrexone pellet is a a vacation away from the constant uh, threat or the craving that causes them and is the impetus to use. And when they can't use because they can't get high and lose the craving, they they kind of think that they got it covered. And then and then when life presents itself in a small, uh, not small, but a significant challenge, they're like a moth to a flame and they have a hardwired response that instead of learning how to deal with and cope with the strategies or the stress, they, this is the thing, oh, I can just do this, but I'll just do it once. You know, they were doing 50 pills, and they said, I just do it once because I just want to have a momentary reprieve from all of the crazy 
in horrible feelings or the the self-loathing or the isolation or the depression or anxiety that I'm feeling. So uh, yeah, that may I think that's the reason why it's so challenging. And yet, you're in your model, which I wholly agree, where the best treatment is something that's going to take a year or more. But how you know how do we as a culture and society pay for that? Because most people don't have that amount of money, and insurance companies are going to cut someone off. You know, I sometimes they'll cover for three months, but usually not. Yeah, that's 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 the big challenge is that the resources to 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 provide the effective treatment that 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 people need are just not there. The insurance coverage is woefully inadequate, um, and yet we will send uh, adults uh, into into prisons um, and spend over a hundred thousand dollars a year incarcerating them when for a fraction of that amount we could mandate that they go into treatment um, and actually uh, have a have a chance to really help them and do some good um, but that's not what society wants society looks at addiction as something that 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 needs to be punished uh, doesn't look at any other disease that way but with the disease of addiction it carries that stigma that okay people because of their behaviors that go along with this disease, these people need to be locked up. The, the, the downside is that we're not giving people uh, the effective treatment that gives them the best chance at sobriety. You know, you can't take a person and put them into a 30-day program who has a severe addiction and severe underlying psychological issues and think that after 30 days, okay, they're, they're, they're ready to go because in all probability, they're not ready to go. The relapse rate's going to be very high. Medication plays a very important role in, in terms of the issues that you addressed and the reasons that you that you mentioned for prescribing medications, they sort of set the medication set the foundation upon which you can build the therapy and the recovery. They're not the answer to to, to everything, uh, but they are the foundation to setting that person up so that they can go through effective treatment, they can learn the skills that they need, and they can learn how to live their life free of, of illicit drugs and alcohol. Uh, but it's a combination between those drugs that are prescribed by, uh, by doctors and the therapy that accompanies it that, that has the most effective for treatment. And then you add in the duration of treatment, which has to be sufficient to address the issues that, that people need to have addressed. Uh, but unfortunately, we can give them medications, uh, we can prescribe them for periods of time, but the, the, the other half of the equation, the effective psychotherapy, the effective treatment, the practicing and learning the coping skills, um, you can't pack those into 30 days and then expect yeah. them to be effective. Yeah. That's so, so well-spoken. I, I, and to me, it's, it's such a frustration. Um, and sometimes, it, it, Richard, sometimes I'm sure that you, you experience as well in your career, is that I'll have people that have been sober for three and four years, and then somehow, some way, they didn't develop that coping skill, and they still, the part that's so frustrating to me as a physician working with this group of people, is they still have this misguided notion that even though they were at risk of overdosing and dying when they were in the throes of their addiction, four years later, they're even at higher risk. 
where they go back and even use a, a, a small percentage of what they were previously using and will die in, in overdose. And so they will. Yeah, it's very, very frustrating. And I don't know if there is a simple solution, but I, something that you mentioned I want to highlight, and that is we'll spend all this money on incarceration and all this money on people in jails. And we've had a, I've had a couple guests on, and they have a, wrote a wrote a book called Prisons for Profit. And I think this is a cultural problem. This is a problem that our focus is on punitive and punishment, and, and including many non uh, you know nonviolent criminals whose behavior was predicated upon them being under the influence of substances, and they're they're being uh, incarcerated and imprisoned for their drug use and yet they'll put them in there in the in the incarceration but we wouldn't spend the same resources to treat them effectively for the medical condition that's right and, and for a fraction of the amount of money that society is, is is paying to incarcerate them for a fraction of that amount of money we could place them in a mandated treatment program for a year or longer yeah. and probably uh, probably uh, do a lot more for them. We have a lot better result, yeah. Well, Richard, I appreciate it. We're coming up at the end of our discussion. I so appreciate you. And, and uh, for those out there listening, get the book. It's a great book, uh, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. The author is Richard Capriola. And um, also there's a parent... Um, workbook that helps the parents in, in what they have to look to and how they can help in the process. And then, Richard, could you uh, give the website where they can learn more about you? And and uh, I don't think I had listed that. Yeah, the website is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. Great. And um, any last words? Uh, we've talked a lot. Uh, any last words, a bit of advice for someone out there struggling, don't know where to go, what to do, other than getting the book? I'll give them that advice. Get this book. It's awesome. I, I, I think that I would give a sense of hope uh, that regardless of what you're struggling with, regardless of the drug you're using, uh, regardless of the severity of the substance use disorder, there is treatment out there, there is hope out there, and that you can recover from this and move on with your life. It's going to take some work. It's going to take a support system. And for any parents out there who are dealing with a child who has a substance use problem, please get some help for yourself. You're going mm -hmm. to need some support. You're going to need some encouragement. It might be other family members. It might be a counselor. Uh, it might be a close friend. But please get some support for yourself as you go through this. Yeah, I'd, I'd highlight that absolutely. And the other thing I would suggest is that you had mentioned before, but I want to highlight, and that is recovery happens on the timeline of the person suffering from the addiction, not on the short-term timeline that the parents want them to get cured. It takes time. And I know uh, it takes two years to get an MBA when you go to college, and I think it's about the similar time frame of someone suffering from abuse or uh, substance abuse. It's a, probably a two-year program until the full you know, effort to really recover. So, Richard, thank you so much. 
um, for your time and thanks for your all your attention and the the devotion that you have to this uh, incredible topic and this challenge. I'm Dr. William Nelson. I want to thank you all for joining us. Another episode of Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery, and also thanks to my wonderful co-host sitting over there in the corner, Robin. And um, thanks, and uh, we look forward to our next episode. Thanks for listening to Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery with Dr. William Nelson. Listen live each week at this time or anytime 24-7 on demand at StarWorldWideNetworks.com.